Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is a great blessing that we may be here again to join together in worship of our triune God. A hearty welcome to all who are present here and to also those who have joined us via the live stream. May the preacher and the gospel direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust our Saviour, Lord Jesus, and cause our lives to live to the praise of his holy name. No further announcements, but this afternoon we welcome Brother Anson Van Delden, a fourth-year student from the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary, to our pulpit. And before we begin, we're going to sing from Psalm 116, verse 1, 3, 4 and 7. rise for our call to worship. This morning, our call to wor- this afternoon, our call to worship comes from the words of Psalm 34, where it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Let my soul make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And it's as we gather here this afternoon that we come indeed to, to exalt his name and to magnify the Lord. So let's together confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Receive God's greeting to you this afternoon, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's sing to our glorious God the words from Psalm 62, stanzas 1, 3 and 4. every week we're given the privilege to, as we gather together to confess our faith and the faith that we have is, is not a private and only personal faith, it's also a faith which we witness to those around us and one way we do that is by reciting together the words of the Apostles Creed to Him One and as we do so we recognize that we join the saints from all tribes and all nations throughout time in confessing our allegiance to God so let's do so this afternoon with the words of Him One.
Before we open God's word and hear an explanation of it, let's ask the Lord to bless this time together. Let's pray. Most gracious God, our heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all fullness of light and wisdom, as we gather here this afternoon, we pray that you will illumine our minds. We beseech you by your Holy Spirit and the true understanding of your word that you will give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and humility. We pray that it may lead us to put our whole trust in you alone and to serve you and honor you, that we may glorify your holy name and edify our neighbors by our good example. And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, will you help us to give you love and homage as we ought to, as children to our Father, as servants to our Lord, we ask all this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this afternoon I'd like to focus on the words of Lord's Day 7, specifically what is grace and to whom is saving faith given. And in connection with that, I'd like to have two readings, firstly from the Gospel of Matthew and then also from Paul's letter to Timothy. So first, Matthew 15 Matthew 15, verse 21, which describes perhaps uh, an example of extraordinary faith. Matthew 15, starting at verse 21, reading through to the end of verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And I'm going to turn forward to the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. One Timothy chapter one. We're going to read at verse twelve, which describes Paul's conversion, as it were. One Timothy chapter one, starting at verse twelve. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might be displayed, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. So far from our scripture readings, as we prepare for God's, the listening of it, let's sing together from Psalm 87, stanzas 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. This afternoon, I'd like to focus on the words of Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of the confessions that we as a church have agreed to, which we see as a faithful summary of God's Word. So let's turn together to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, and read the question and answers there. 
Lord's Day 7, question and answer 20. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the preaching of the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And then follows the Apostles' Creed as we've just sung them together in hymn one. So far from our confessional reading this afternoon. But dear friends, I'd like to begin with a question. It's a question for both adults and children, and it's a question I'd like you to consider for just a moment. The question I'm thinking of is this. Who is the last person in the world that you think will ever become a Christian? Who is the last person in the world that you think will ever become a Christian? I'd like you to think about that for just a moment. Who is that person in your mind? You see, it's possible as we think about a question who this person might be, it's possible that we can think of people in the world. There are some people in this world who make media news regularly who may be very unlikely in our minds to become a Christian. There's leaders of countries that perhaps we think are unlikely to become a Christian. There's people in movies or in the Hollywood that we think might be the most unlikely person to become a Christian. But I think for most of us, as we think about this, we're going to think of someone probably closer to home. Perhaps that person that's most unlikely for you is someone that's close to you and someone that you know. Perhaps it's dad or a mum, an uncle or an aunt. Someone who's wandered away from the faith and left the Lord. For some of us, perhaps it's a sibling that's left the faith. Perhaps for others, it's a friend who refuses the claims of Christianity as we approach them time and time again. Perhaps it's someone close to you that will be unlikely to become a Christian. Or perhaps this afternoon, as you think about that question, you think of yourself. Perhaps you, you yourself, are the most unlikely person to become a Christian, maybe. Perhaps you doubt the claims, the true claims of Christianity to be true. You doubt whether God is real, whether God even exists. Maybe that you doubt yourself that you are somehow too far alienated from God and there's, there's no way in your mind that you could be reconciled. Perhaps there's sin in your life that you feel excludes you somehow from God's grace. Some hidden sin or some well-known sin or some big sin that somehow you think is beyond God's grace. Perhaps there's a sin of abortion 
Perhaps the sin of a fair. Perhaps it's some abuse that you've suffered or perhaps anything similar to that. Perhaps as an abuse you, you feel unlovable. There's no way that God could love you. Perhaps you yourselves are that person who is most unlikely to become a Christian. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Scotland. And while I was in Scotland, I met a local church planter there. His name was Mez. And while I was there, I sat down with Mez and had a talk to him about a book that he was just about to publish. It's a book called The Creaking on the Stairs. You probably haven't heard of the book. Mez is now a pastor in the church. But in the book, he details his struggles, his immense struggles to find faith in God despite and through his childhood mistreatments. In his book, he writes of the hurt that he received from his stepmother and her friends time and time again. And he recounted when he found out that she had passed away, when, when he found out that his stepmother had passed away, he, he said there was a sense of joy at her passing. He writes in the book, he said, I wanted to rejoice in the belief that she will face the judge of all the earth for her crimes against me. He said, I want to revel in the thought that she is having her own spiritual Nuremberg moment before God Almighty right now, he writes. God had caught up with her and her sins were about to be found out and brought into terrible and perfect light. Hell, he said, was that glorious place where people like her go. People that terrorize others and live such a horrible life. And she, he imagined, would be right there. But as I chatted to him and as I flicked the next chapter in his book, the next chapter is titled, The Terrible Reality of Heaven. And he continues in his book, he says, Maybe she did change at the end. An awful thought crosses my mind. What if she, like me, found the true forgiveness and faith in Jesus Christ? No, surely not. God would not do that to me. He's on my side, right? He wouldn't let me down by, by saving my chief tormentor, would he? Imagine that, he says. The question that this author was dealing with, and the question which bothered him at the time was this. Heaven is not for people like her, is it? Is heaven for that person that you were thinking of? Is heaven the place for you? Is true faith in Jesus Christ, is that enough? Given all that she's done, if all that you have done. If she was grafted into Christ at her death, and now she's with heaven, she's with heaven, she's in with Christ in heaven, praising God, is that true? Is that what we believe? Is faith enough alone? Is faith enough for salvation? And in a sense, what the author Mez was struggling with is the reality that we confess in Lord's Day 7 of our, that we just read together. Question and answer 20. Who is saved? And on, and on the basis of what is someone saved? And so this afternoon, I'd like to focus specifically on question and answer 20 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those who are saved who by a true faith are, are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. And if you're new here this afternoon or if you're new to the Christian faith and perhaps you're wondering how ever in the world did we get to such a question as this, it's helpful just to rewind through the catechism and see where we're at. 
If we had been progressing through the catechism, we would have started at Lord's Day 1 at the beginning. And Lord's Day 1 brings us face to face with our sin in our misery. From where do you know your sin and misery from the law of God? And we confess in Lord's Day 2 that we are totally inclined to hate God and to hate our neighbor. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. There's no hope for any of us without the saving grace of God. That's what we confess in, in Lord's Day 3. All women, all men, all children are spiritually dead unless they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We see that in question and answer 8. But then we also confess that God, that God is the judge of all the earth. He will not simply overlook sin. We see that in Lord's Day 4. He will not let rebellion go unpunished at all. God is too holy to turn a blind eye to our rebellion and our wrongdoings. And God's good character demands that he, all our sins must be paid for. We went through that in Lord's Day 5 together. And in a sense, that leaves us as mankind in a, in a hopeless position. We're all dead in sin, deserving of death. And God will not overlook any of our transgressions. And then we come to Lord's Day 6. And in Lord's Day 6, we, we come to realize that there, were, there, was, there is, as it were, a, a ship, a rescue ship on the horizon. There is a deliverer. There is a savior. There is someone who will come and rescue us. There is a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the person that we confess in Lord's Day 18, who is that person, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Lord's Day 6, that there is salvation through Jesus Christ. There is hope. The rescue boat is, as it were, on the horizon. And then as we come to Lord's Day 7 this afternoon, the question is then this. How many are going to be saved? If Jesus Christ is the mediator, how many will he save? Is it true that everyone that has died is also everyone that will live? Is there a one-to-one ratio? All are saved. I mean, all are, have sinned and all are saved. Is that the correlation that we need to think about? Who is saved? How much of humanity does God through Christ save everybody without distinction? And a simple answer that the catechism gives us is no. No, not all people are saved. Only those who are saved, who by true faith are, are grafted into Christ and accept all its benefits. And so this afternoon, as we have some time together, I'd like to consider the two responses to the truth that Lord's Day 7, question answer 20 bring to us. With this theme, salvation through Jesus Christ. And I'd like to look at two points. Firstly, by true faith alone, with a question mark. And secondly, by true faith alone, with an exclamation mark. Salvation through Jesus Christ. And firstly, by true faith alone. So question question seven says, are all men then saved? And it's possible that some will hear that that this afternoon. That they will hear this no that the catechism gives. And it's possible here that they might even applaud this answer of no. They might celebrate this truth. Not all people are saved. Amen. That's great news. There are some terrible people in this world that don't deserve to be there. And I'm glad that not all people are saved. Perhaps you might hear yourself in that. But after a short short answer of no, the catechism gives a further explanation. It says, only those who are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. 
And it's interesting to note what the catechism doesn't say firstly. It doesn't say as all those who are saved who by true faith plus obedience to Christianity and God for six months is required. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we have to have true faith and keep all the commandments religiously. Of course, it's very important, but that's not what the catechism says. Nor does it say that it requires going to church regularly and living a good life. And, and of course, all three of those things are necessary. But the catechism says that it's true faith that's required. True faith is the essential ingredient to being saved. Without true faith, no one can be saved. And that's what's confessed in this question and answer 20. And so it's good to stop here for a moment and, and, and pause. Faith alone is enough to save. And can God again give that faith to anybody? Can God give that saving faith to any person, whoever they are and whatever they have done? That's the question that my friend from the pastor from Scotland was wrestling with. Does God give this gift of faith? Does he give it only to good people? Only people who are born in the right family? Or does he give this gift of faith to any person without distinction? I'm reminded of a verse from an old hymn. The hymn is, To God Be the Glory. I'm sure many of you know it. And there's one of the verses that I find particularly jarring in there. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Christ a pardon receives. Isn't that amazing in that verse? Who is saved? Well, the hymn says, even the vilest offender that truly believes is one that's saved. Only someone who by true faith believes in God, that vilest offender is saved. And while I think of this, I can think of many despicable, many unpleasant, many terrible people in this world. And perhaps you can think of so, but this says, this hymn says and our catechism says that even that vilest offender can receive the gift of faith. Even you, you can receive that gift of faith regardless of what you've done in your life. We just celebrated Easter, uh, Good Friday a few days ago. Even that thief on the cross, perhaps a vile offender, even he received the grace at the last moment and he had enough faith to believe. Question and answer 20. It uses the analogy of, of grafting. I'm sure many of us have heard the explanation of grafting before. You see, grafting is when a farmer grabs a branch from a tree that he, that he wants to save and he, as it were, plugs that branch into a, a really healthy tree. If he's left it alone, that branch is going to die. But as he plugs that branch into the healthy tree, then the branch begins to live through the healthy tree. And it's through the healthy tree that the branch buds and bears fruit. And that's the example that's used of faith. When we, when we are taken in our deadness and we are plugged into Jesus Christ, as it were, when we're grafted into Him, then we receive all the blessings, all the benefits that flow through from Jesus Christ into us. And by faith we're made alive. That's a picture that the, that the catechism wants to give us in this analogy of grafting. And we can see evidence, we see evidence of that saving faith in what we read together from our scripture reading. We read together from Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, we see Jesus retreating away from the area that he was, and he went up high to the district of Tyre and Sidon. 
And while he's there, he's confronted, we read, by a Canaanite woman, a woman from that region. It's, it's important to know that this woman, that she was outside the tribe of Israel. She was not from the lost tribe of Israel. In fact, she wasn't one of the people that Jesus came to save. Or so Jesus says. There was no command to work among the Gentiles at that time. The apostles were not commanded to work among the Gentiles. In fact, Jesus had specifically said earlier, he said that they were not to do that. In a few chapters previous, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 verse 5, when he, when he sent the twelve out, he said, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, he says, but rather go to the lost tribe of the house of Israel. So here was Jesus going where he told his disciples not to go. And if ever there was an, an evidence of the most unlikely faith, perhaps we see an example of that. One of the many in scripture we see in this Canaanite woman. The disciples are bothered by this woman that's continually pestering her, pestering them, walking behind them and yelling out to them. The disciples are bothered by this crying of this inconvenient non-Jewish lady who's concerned about the well-being of her daughter. It's clear that the disciples wanted to just get rid of her. Do whatever she needs to do. Get rid of her, Jesus. She's a bother to us. Send her away. Get, give her what she wants. Get rid of her. From the disciples' perspective, this woman seemed very unremarkable. But what the disciples could not see was her great faith. What looked ordinary, even bothersome to the disciples, was extraordinary for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what transpired in that, that conversation, which is sometimes hard to understand, what, what transpired was a remarkable demonstration of that woman's faith. In fact, nowhere else in Scripture do we read this, this accolade from Jesus, Great is your faith. And it was interesting, as I was doing preparation for the sermon, there are only two instances or two times, as it were, in the, in the New Testament where Jesus says, is said to have marveled. We read that in, uh, in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus marveled at the unbelief of Nazareth. If anyone was to believe, if anyone was likely to come to faith, it was the city of Nazareth that Jesus was born. And Jesus then marvels in Mark 6 at their unbelief. But we also read in an example like Luke 7, where the centurion comes to Jesus and wants the healing. And even when it's most unlikely, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. He marvels at his great faith. You see, the gospel message was first and foremost for the Jews, for the people of Israel. But here in the passage of Matthew 15, here in this passage we realize that she, most undeserving, didn't deserve to be included, also comes to Jesus. She had faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. She called him Lord, Son of David. Essentially, she had the faith, as we confess in Lord's Day 7, the sure knowledge of, of who Christ was and the promises that are true for her. She knew who Jesus was, and, and she believed that he could help him. She placed her confidence and hope and trust in him. And that's the essence of, of saving faith. What made it most remarkable was that she was a Gentile. And God had given her the gift of faith a most, a most remarkable thing. She was saved. Or perhaps you might even consider the example of Paul that we read together from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Where Paul says he thanks God who had given him the strength. 
And Paul says in verse 13 that formerly he was a blasphemer. Formerly he was an insolent opponent. He was a, he was a persecutor, he writes. And Paul there is referring back to his conversion story. And we read that conversion story in Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 9 or you can simply listen along to the story. In Acts chapter 9, we read of Paul's conversion there. Acts chapter 9 verse 1, but Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on the way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Here is Saul breathing threats against the Christians. And he went to the synagogue and said, I'd like a letter. And in that letter, I want permission to take anyone who's a Christian, persecute them, take them away and drag them away. He had evil intents. But yet on the road to Damascus, he meets the Savior in a most marvelous way. There's a voice and a light that comes around him saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city and do what you've been told to do. So here is Paul, and a hater of the Christians, has an encounter with Jesus. And Paul, blinded by the light, goes to the town. But then consider for a moment what, what transpires in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Stop there. There was a disciple named Ananias. This was a disciple of the way. This was a Christian. This was the very person that Paul had a letter to take and to drag away. And God appears to Ananias and he says, and Ananias, what we read in verse 10, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus, Named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So the Lord says to Ananias, he says, Ananias, I want you to go to a man named Saul. And I want you to lay your hands on him. And Ananias replies in verse 13. Ananias replies with probably the response that all of us would reply. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. There he says, Lord, the person that you want to go has a death notice for me and you want me to go and put my hands on him? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. As one author says, look, look at Saul, the Hebrew of Hebrews who became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Here is Paul, a blasphemer, who became Paul, a believer, a predator who became a preacher. 
A terrorist who became a theologian, a law keeper who became a grace receiver, a scoundrel who became a saint. And when we look at Saul, she continues, we can't help but recognize that there is no sinner. There's no scoundrel. There's no blasphemer. There's no murderer. There's no person at all beyond the reaches of God's grace and mercy made available through Jesus Christ. God can save any person, regardless of circumstances, and he can bring about faith through the Holy Spirit in whomever he wishes. That's the good news that we see in Lord's Day 7. Yes, we are all spiritually dead before God. Death reigns supreme. But God in great grace has given given grace to the most unlikely people. Through Jesus Christ and, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, true faith is worked in the hearts of the spiritually dead. And therefore we who are here this afternoon, we who have been granted that gift of faith, we stand faultless before God on account of the faith that Jesus Christ has worked in us through His Spirit. But true faith alone, faith in Jesus Christ and salvation through him is a, is a free gift of God. And so what should be our response to this no that the catechism gives? Well, surely, surely for those of us who have received this gift of faith, we must have an attitude of humbleness and gratitude for what God has given the simple fact that God, that God saves anybody without distinction reminds us that we are not worthy of this gift. Nobody is worthy. Nobody has the right to be included in God's kingdom. And do you recognize this great gift that God has given you? Do you acknowledge that it's because of God's kindness alone that we receive this gift of grace? The rescue mission that the Lord's Day 6 spoke about through the Savior is totally unmerited. We are all sinners. We are all the vilest offenders. We're all deserving of God's punishment. What an amazing gift of grace. So then perhaps our reaction should be that of Paul's that he expresses in 1 Timothy chapter 1. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. We are saved by true faith alone. That brings us to a second point, by true faith alone. It's possible as we consider this no to the question and answer 20 that we have a very different response. It's possible that as we see this no in the confession that our eyes are moistened with with the realization that many in this world will be condemned. And though our arms are quick, our arms are open and our feet are quick to share the gospel, there are many who deny that. It's possible that there's a sense of sadness and disappointment as we read this no that the catechism gives. It's possible as we as we think of this that we recognize, as we confess in Canons of Dort, Article Chapter One, Article Four, that the wrath of God rests on those who do not believe. The question is, do we recognize that the wrath of God is coming? There is a coming day of wrath when, when all the righteous, sorry, and the, there is a coming day of wrath and righteous judgment of God. Everybody, Paul says, everybody will have to give an account to God. And there are only two verdicts, there are only two sentences guilty or not guilty. Eternal life for some and, and eternal death and punishment for others. Not all are saved. 
And so what should be our response to the fact that not all are saved? Well, perhaps the first response should be one of evangelizing. Question answer 21 of Lord's Day 7 concludes with this fact that the Holy Spirit is worked in my heart by the gospel. That faith is worked by the Holy Spirit in my heart through the gospel. It's only through God's word and the saving power of the Holy Spirit that, that one is given faith. And if it is true then that God can save anybody regardless of their background and regardless of their race, regardless of gender, regardless of, of class distinction or whatever the case may be, if that is true, and if salvation comes through the Spirit and the Word, then it must be the priority of the church collectively and us individually to bring the gospel to all people. And that's exactly what we confess in the Canons of Dort. Again, Canons of Dort... Chapter 2, Article 5. You, find, you can find it on page 573 if you want to follow along. Canada Dort, Art, Chapter 2, Article 5 says this. It has a title, The Universal Proclamation of the Gospel. And it says there, The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise ought to be announced and proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples and all men to whom God in His good pleasure sends the gospel together with the command to repent and believe. Did you get that line? That this, is, this gospel is to be proclaimed universally and without distinction to all men? It's an echo of what, we confer, of what Christ said in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Dear friends, the church collectively and, and the believers individually, we are the means by which God uses to bring about faith in others that do not, that do not yet know Him. And since God's grace is indiscriminate to whoever, then so also must be the proclamation of the gospel to whoever. It must be announced, proclaimed universally without discrimination to all people. As I reflect on my own life and my own context in Hamilton, and perhaps this is true for you here as well, I think there's work that we have to do in an area like this. As I reflect on my own life, and perhaps as you and reflect on yours, and even as a church, perhaps, isn't it true that so often we do discriminate? That sometimes we, un that we do discriminate who we share the gospel with? Isn't it true, and, and regrettably so? That so often the gospel message is not communicated with all people. And that sometimes I even myself prefer to pass by the foulest offender. Perhaps even as I myself reflect on the truth that we've confessed in, in question and answer 20, that I need to reconsider even this. That as, I, as me, as a means by which God can bring grace to others, that I am diligent to share the gospel message to with anybody and everybody I come across. Our response to this question and answer must embolden us somehow, each in our own context, each in our own situation, to go forth and be a witness of the gospel for Jesus Christ. And so maybe that means that we have to interact with that person at work that has colored hair and is awfully weird. Maybe that means we need to talk to our neighbor who wears very weird clothes and has a lifestyle that we don't understand. 
Maybe there's a friend that we have that we don't often speak to about Jesus Christ. It makes us feel very uncomfortable. Maybe there's a group or a community group in our area whom we prefer to avoid because they make us feel uncomfortable. This afternoon, we need to think about them. Is there a way that we can also reach out to those people, even the vilest offenders? We need to evangelize those around us. But I also think a question and answer 20 like this must also drive us to prayer. Question and answer 20 must also drive us to our knees in prayer. We should be diligent in prayer before them, before God. Humbly appealing that God would also give them the gift of faith to others as he has given to us. We need to pray boldly knowing that no one, that no one is outside God's saving power. God can save any without distinction. We need to pray for our neighbors that we interact with. Our work colleagues that we engage with. We need to expand our circles and pray for your community here in Southern River and beyond. We need to to pray for the city of Perth and the world and the nation that we are in. We need to pray that God will grant saving faith even to those that disgust us, even to those that have offended us and even hurt us. We need to beg for God's grace and mercy to those indulging in sexual sins, those who are lost in other religions, those who are struggling with gender identity, those who are homosexuals and, and blasphemers and persecutors and murderers and abusers and the like. We need to pray. We need to pray that for God. To work faith in them as well. And if we understand the great gift that we have. Then we will want to share that with others in a humble yet earnest heart. Just as the Lord is patient. Not wishing that any should perish. So we should also have the same hearts and hands. Eager to share the goodness. The good news of salvation to all. To all peoples and, and to all types. I'm reminded of the words that our Lord spoke in in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is often referred to as as the high priestly prayer. And in John chapter 17, we see see Jesus praying. And it strikes me in verse 9 and 10 where Jesus says, I am praying for them, those whom the Father has given me. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All of mine are yours and yours are mine and, and I am glorified in them. So Christ is praying for all those that, are, that are, the Father has given him. But he says later on in verse 20, he says, But I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you are, Father, in me and I in you. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may also be with me where I am, that they may see your glory that you have given me. And I imagine in a situation like this that Jesus is not just praying for those immediately around him, but Jesus is also praying for Paul. Paul at the time, a blasphemer and abuser who would one day become Paul, the apostle. And so the question is for you, perhaps this afternoon, who's on your prayer list? Perhaps you can expand your prayer list to someone that has hurt you. Perhaps you can expand your prayer list to people that have ignored you. Perhaps you can expand your prayer list to people that have left the faith. Or even then that person that you thought was the most unlikely person to become a Christian. Dear friends, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God saves anybody without distinction, anybody without merit. 
The Apostle Paul, he's proof of that. The Canaanite woman that we read in Matthew 15, she's proof of that. We are all here sitting together, our proof of God's undeserved grace. Indeed, all, any who have received the gift of faith are proof of that. No one could have ever made it apart from the sheer mercy of our Heavenly Father. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. And though our sins are many, His mercy is more. And therefore, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That singing response from hymn 28, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. together in thanksgiving prayer. As you bow our heads again, Father, this afternoon, we want to to acknowledge how deep your love is for us, how vast beyond all measure that you should give your only son to make a wretch his treasure. But this afternoon, we want to acknowledge the great pain of searing loss as, as a father turned his face away from you, O Savior. 
as wounds which mar the chosen ones bring many sons to glory. Yes, even, even many here this afternoon who are hearing this. And Father, this weekend, also this weekend, as we had the opportunity to behold you, our Savior, upon a cross, and acknowledge our sins were upon his shoulders, ashamed we hear our mocking voices call out among the scoffers. Father, we acknowledge that it was our sins that held him there until it was accomplished. And it was his dying breath that has brought all of us life. And Father, we know that it is finished. Father, we thank you for the great grace which you have shown to so many of us. And Father, we pray that you will continue to work that gift of grace in all of us here. That your spirit may go forth from the word and through into our hearts and transform all our, all our hearts and minds and lives. That we may become children of you. Lord, we pray that you convict us of this truth. And where we struggle, we pray that you will give us confidence in this too. And Father, we also want to pray for those around us. There are so many in our community that are walking in darkness. There are so many, even in our own friendship circles, perhaps in our own families, who are wandering far from you. So this afternoon, Father, we want to pray for them also. That you will also give them the gift of faith as you've given to many of us. That you work powerfully through their spirit and transform their lives and hearts as you have ours. And Father, we pray that you will do mighty works in their name, in their hearts as well. And so, Father, as we come to you this afternoon, we acknowledge that we will not boast in anything, no gifts and, and no power, no wisdom. But we will boast in you, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in his death and, and his resurrection. Father, why should we gain from his reward a question that we often cannot give an answer? But we thank you, Lord, for the assurance, even again this afternoon, for the true knowledge that you and your wounds have paid for our ransom. And so, Father, we pray will you bless us as we go into this week ahead. Give us boldness and diligence and, and the desire to reach out to those around us through a phone call or a message or a coffee or whatever the case may be. We give us also the boldness that we need to, to deal with those close to us. We can share the love also in that regard. And Father, we pray that you will help us in our prayers for this too. We can also bring before you those who, who have also left you. For the prayers we consider this, you'll be also gracious to us in our weaknesses. Father, go with us, we pray, for the remainder of the, for the week ahead. Will you bless us in all our endeavors? We pray that whatever we do may be done to your honor and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. You're reminded that the offerings are being taken at the door or online, and this afternoon for the Ministry of Mercy, which is under his wings. You can find details of that for the online transfers as you need. Otherwise, you'll be taken at the door on the way out. Let's then sing in closing from hymn 28, stanzas 5, 6, and 7. We'll do that standing. Hymn 28, 5, 6, and 7.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and, and go your way in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.